We're reading Luke 22, verses 39 to 71. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, somebody else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. 
When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, um, we've already been reminded this morning that you are the words of eternal life. We've been reminded uh, that you are holy and all-powerful and that you extend your grace and mercy to a world that hates you. And so, Lord, as we open your word together now, I pray that we would see that grace. I pray that we would see your mercy for us who hated you and now love you. I pray, Lord, that we would be caused to genuinely reflect on our temptations and our struggles and put to work your spirit in us, your word in us, that we might live more for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Chapel Street. Morning to our visitors and to those online and uh, those that will listen later on. Um, it's good to be back in Luke. We've obviously had a couple of weeks break from that in one sense, because um, Easter's been here and gone. In one sense, it should never go. But we're sort of going back in the text, um, having gone through crucifixion and uh, burial and resurrection. Uh, we're jumping back. And it's good to be reading the text as a church, the whole text, the whole gospel. So we're going to be bringing messages from bits of it, but it's good to have the sound of the whole gospel going through this church. The context of where we've got to in Luke 22 is the Lord's on his way to the cross. He's entered Jerusalem. He's set his face like flint. He's a resolution that is sure and certain and absolute. He's been through the Lord's Supper. He's instituted that. Judas has gone out to betray him, and here he's coming back in this text. And he goes to the garden, and the Lord loves gardens. He created them. People might well have assembled them, but he created everything in the garden. He loves to be in his creation, doesn't he? But this is a very dark time for the Lord Jesus. The cup of wrath is before him. Not just the death burial that's coming, the judgment for sin that's coming, but what's about to happen to him? He's about to be betrayed by his own disciples. He's about to have a mock trial. He's about to be struck and beaten. It's a dark time and the cup is before him. And he is in agony in this garden, isn't he? There's a conflict at work in his soul. In Matthew, it's very profound. My soul is sorrowful even unto death. While this is going on, 
His disciples are asleep. We need to cause ourselves, I think, if I can sort of invite us as a people that proclaim Christ to enter now into the garden, to see ourselves there, to consider and question how we might react to this, to being there, to our sorrow, to our sleep. So let's get in there. Let's get into it. First, I want to focus on the Lord Jesus and his reaction. This is a massive piece of scripture that has extraordinary profoundness. We won't be dwelling on that too much because I want us to try and get to a particular aspect that's often not spoken about in this text. We'll focus on the Lord, then we'll focus on the disciples, and then we'll get into understanding more about temptation. So the Lord's in his garden. He goes there regularly. This is the last time, perhaps, that he goes there before the crucifixion, certainly. And he goes there to pray. Jesus is a prayer. He communes with his father all the time. He spends time away to pray. Often people don't know where he's gone because he's praying. He gets up early. He goes into the garden to pray. And he says to his disciples, hey, you better pray. <laughs> you better pray that you don't fall into temptation, that you don't enter into temptation. And about a stone's throw away, the Lord knelt and started to pray himself. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. The most profound words, right? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Immortal words. And Auntie Dorothy was talking to me uh, the other week about the victory that Christ won on the cross. She said, Really, the victory was here in the garden. Christ's resolution to go through with it. And of course, it happens in the fuller sense on the cross. But immortal words, the cup of wrath, not my will, yours be done. In the midst of this anxious agony, as he's praying, ministering angel comes, sent from heaven. What a beautiful thing. Ministering angel comes to encourage him, to support him, to pray more. And the text says, being in agony, he prayed even more earnestly. He didn't stop in the agony, even though his soul was sorrowful unto death. He didn't stop. He continued to wrestle with this ten tension in him, this conflict, this temptation. And he gave his attention to God all the more. That's the Lord Jesus in Gethsemane. What about the disciples? Well, it says he came to the disciples and he found them praying with joy and jubilation. No. Snoring. Sleeping. Complete opposite to what Christ is doing. They were sorrowful. The text says that they slept because they were so sorrowful. And let's be honest. I don't know whether you've experienced it. I know some of you are experiencing it right now. Sorrow is exhausting, isn't it? It's wearing. You pick the heaviness up of life, and it's exhausting. 
But Jesus is sorrowful and still awake. Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Matthew records him saying that three times. And a little look at the Greek word there for enter into temptation. And it's the word isokomai. And it literally means something to go in to you like food. It also means thoughts coming into you. Is this sounding familiar? And it's the word that the Lord Jesus uses for Satan entering into Judas. It's the same word. So there's temptation all around here in this text here today as well. But in this text, there's temptation all around. And just ask and pray that you won't enter it. Pray that these thoughts won't come into your mind that will take you away from worshipping me, from appealing to your father for help. Pray that Satan wouldn't knock and you relent and give in, yield. Great thing to recommend, isn't it? But what happens next? Judas is tempted to the point of betraying Jesus. Now, you might sit there and blame Satan for that, but it's Judas that let him in, right? And Satan wants Jesus. We know that. What happens next? Peter is tempted to the point of denying Christ three times. And the disciples are tempted to the point of deserting Christ. Apart from Peter, and if you read John's gospel, John is kind of lingering around through people that he knows. He's got contacts. The rest have vanished. They're gone. In Matthew's version of this text, the Lord says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he says, for the flesh is weak. You know the text. But the spirit is willing. And we can misread that text all the time. The spirit of God wants us to commune with him, wants us to commune with the father. But the flesh is weak. It gives in. It's weak in sin. But in Christ, it should have a power. Well, I guess I want to say, it's easy to kind of judge the disciples. We've got to be very careful with that. Where's their training? I mean, they've been with Jesus for three years, right? He's been talking, they've seen miracles, they've been really close to him. He's 12. But where's their training? All the things they learned. Where's it gone? I guess we should ask the question then, if we're in this garden, how would we react? It's easy 2,000 years later to look back and say, well, I would have done that. But we probably would have. An hour of prayer, the Lord says. You can't even pray for an hour in, in Matthew. You're fighting your temptation or you're just exhausted from your sorrow. I guess today we need to also ask ourselves, come out of the garden for a second. How am I doing now? I do an hour of prayer. It's not a competition. But am I caught up in my sorrow or am I taking my sorrow to Christ and fighting sleep 
Am I yielding to temptation or am I bringing those temptations before God? Are we praying that we wouldn't fall into temptation? Because we can, we do. At any given moment, that can happen to us. Are we spiritually weak? Are we spiritually weak? Or are we fit? Are we well trained? One, one of the reasons we come to church, one of the reasons we go to Bible studies, one of the reasons we come to prayer night is to be spiritually fit, to take parts of our lives and commit them all the more to Christ. We also need to learn, don't we, how to fight temptation. I remember uh, listening to a preacher, I think it was Paul Washer, who spoke about the struggle that he had with prayer. And in the end, he locked himself in the broom cupboard with an alarm clock. And he set the alarm to go off every few minutes because when he prayed, what happened? He fell asleep. But prayer at nighttime is deadly, isn't it, in one sense? Not that we shouldn't do it. And he learned. Every time he nodded off and the alarm went off, he woke up again. He trained himself to some degree. And I think the church today, and I'm speaking generally, is lazy. <laughs> I really do. I think we, we've become idle, especially perhaps in the West. It's a really big issue. Do we fight temptation or don't we? And we need to learn how to fight. And so... With this message today, I just want to pop out of the garden for a second. We'll pop back in later on. And just to take a look at two basic things. One is the source of temptation, what the Bible says about where temptation comes from. And the other is to look at just a few practical ways, some application into our lives so that when we leave here today, we can put these steps into practice that might help us to fight temptation so let's deal with the first one then what does the bible say about the source of temptation well you don't have to go far in the bible do you to see temptation where does it happen first in the garden of eden and i don't know what day it was uh, was it, it certainly wasn't the first seven days but sometime after that eve was tempted by satan and she gave in she listened to the lie she listened to the deceiver but the deceiver didn't get the blame. I mean, he was cursed. He got judged for it. Who got the blame? Adam actually got the blame. Now, there's a whole piece of doctrine around that that we don't have time to look at. But the point is, you can't blame Satan for it. Satan's there, banging at the door constantly. But Eve and Adam were culpable. You know, some people, they, they blame God for temptation. God's tempting me. The Bible says he might give you a trial. Like he will give you a trial. But it does say that he won't tempt. And I'll show you that in a second. And some people, have, as I've already said, blame Satan. Yes, a deceiver. Yes, a liar. Yes, a murderer. Someone who's bent, hell-bent, literally, on defrauding and deceiving and besmirching the glory of Christ. Some blame their circumstances. I was lonely. I was hungry. A few blame themselves, do they? 
always external forces, my context, my loneliness. If you look at their sinful state as the source of temptation. See, the problem is it's an inward thing. There are outward forces, for sure. But there's an inward thing going on here. Our nature yearns for it. James 1 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Does it sound like the Lord Jesus in the garden, in agony? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person tempted is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We can't really blame everything else, can we? Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Don't be deceived, says, says James, beloved brothers. Don't be deceived. Don't blame everything else for your temptation or your yielding to it. So who's to blame? God, Satan, or me? Don't make excuses about your life. Some people like to suggest that God put them in some kind of situation where they could do nothing eventually but succumb to temptation. Again, the Bible, Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. We all have the temptations of life. God is faithful and he won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. But the temptation he will... But with that temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You've got no excuse. God didn't just give me such a big temptation or allow that to happen such that I actually had to kind of just go with it. <laughs> he always provides the way out. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. the way out he's able isn't he to endure it so if that's what the bible says about the source of temptation secondly i want us to consider what the bible says about the fight against temptation we now know that we are culpable anybody here not believe that no anybody here not being tempted good we're on the same page what does the bible say about how we fight against it well the first thing i want to to say to us all is you cannot fight temptation simply by abstaining from it. Abstaining from it is important. We must do that. We must be in that battle, but that won't have victory over it. It's good to be robust and stoic about sin, for sure. It's good to fight to, to attempt to be obedient and holy, but it won't help in the end, long-term, it's a part of it. As I've already said, it's about training in spiritual fitness. Uh, some years ago, um, I learned that there was a thing called CrossFit. And uh, 
where we work, where Lydia and I work and others, uh, right next to us is a gym with all these kind of super um, muscular men and, and women as well. And it's extraordinary how often they go to the gym, spend hours sweating away and pumping iron and, and CrossFit apparently is the thing where you, it's not what I thought it was. I thought that it was the thing where you, you try and get fit and you just get cross because you never really get fit. But apparently you go and do one thing, rowing machine, and then you go to the cycling machine and then you go to the, you can tell I don't really know much about it, but the pull up bars or you just keep changing. It makes your body fit. But there's another kind of cross fit, isn't there? There's a crossness fit, cross-shaped fitness that it's not about physical stuff, although we should look after our bodies. It's about spiritual fitness. Bodily training, says the word, is of some value, but godliness Spiritual fitness is of value in every way, every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. What kind of promise does it hold? You're going to heaven? Yes, but not because of your godliness. It's evidence that we're Christians. It's evidence that we're trying to fight temptation and sin. And the Bible tells us that there are kind of three categories of temptation. It says quite simply that there is the desires of the flesh, the things that our bodies crave. They might be different for some of us, but there's that fleshly desire. I want this. I want that. That will be good for me. I like the taste of this. I like the feeling of that. Then there are the desires of the eyes. They're the things that we want, that we think are good for us or might make us even look good. And the third kind is the pride of life. That one is very subtle. It's very subtle, the pride of life, the things that give us status in one way or another, wanting adulation from people, wanting to feel good that way. Now here's a, an unexhaustive list, if we break that down, of our temptations. Sensuality. Anything that appeals to our senses, whatever sense you want. Sexual immorality. Colossal. Lust. We're tempted sometimes to overeat. That's one of my big weaknesses. That's a confession. What are yours? <laughs> Human experience. We, we can be addicted to going on holidays, we can be addicted to uh, social media, just getting some connection and, and experience in life, and many other things that we can be addicted to. And there's temp temptations to that all the time. The praise of men, addicted to people just thinking well of us, that we're significant or important. Wow, the Bible's got a lot to say against that, hasn't it? Who is important? Jesus. Philippians 2, he emptied himself of that, didn't he? Material possessions, money, body, the whole health thing, as I've already mentioned, image, 
deceiving others. Some people are tempted to deceive others, tempted to lie because of the pride of life, wanting perhaps people to think better of them or not to get found out. Some people are tempted to hate. You are, I have been. Hopefully you are fighting that. I'm learning to fight that. To give up on God. That's what the disciples did right here, right? They gave up on God. They betrayed him. They were tempted to it and they yielded. They couldn't even stay awake and pray earnestly that they wouldn't do those things. Some people are tempted not to come to church. Temptation's everywhere, isn't it? Would you agree? It's everywhere. So what's the remedy? What's the antidote? What's the word say? What should we be doing with this thing that's constantly crouching at us? I want to just put up one quick thing and then we'll look at four uh, applications that hopefully will, will help us. Oscar Wilde, perhaps not someone who is quoted from a pulpit very often, said the best way to deal with temptation is to yield to it. It's a terrible idea. If you want to deal with, if you want temptation to go away, give in. <laughs> I'm tempted to eat that chocolate. Give in, right? What happens when you give in? It goes away for a while. <laughs> till the next bar of chocolate comes. Right? That's terrible. The Bible doesn't say that at all. You know, Jesus Christ was tempted all the time. Sometimes we think of him in the wilderness, the 40 days, 40 nights, we're super hungry and Satan comes and tempts him, not just with those three that we read about, but all through that time, we think that was it. That was his time of temptation. No, he was tempted right up to the resurrection. Or right into the grave, perhaps, to be, to be fair. So it never went away. He didn't yield. He didn't give in. The temptation just kept on. Worship me, says Satan. Come on. Never gave in. It never went away. So four points on fighting temptation. And I just hope that they encourage you. You know, putting this message together, I felt fantastically, in a, in a negative way, uh, convicted. You know, I'll, I'll just tell you very quickly, you know, I finished, I think, about 8.30 last night and went home and, whew, you know, it was all in my head and it was falling out of me and I couldn't quite think straight. And there on the table was a bar of chocolate <laughs> and it was given to me and I saw it and Sandy was sitting between me and the bar and I thought, oh, there it is. <laughs> now, it might seem innocuous, but it leads, in my case, to obesity. It's not innocuous. But this has been a challenge to me. So four ways. Firstly, learn how to spot temptation. Some temptation is really subtle. In fact, we're so given into it that we don't even notice it. No one's tempted for things they don't want. You know that my temptation is food. I've said that, amongst other things. I put here it's an eating disorder. Be honest. <laughs> But if someone came to me and said, hey, I've got a bowl of soil, eat it. Be tempted to eat the bowl. <laughs> I'm not interested in soil. I'm not, it doesn't do anything for me. It's too chewy. But if someone comes with something I really want, I might not even notice. It can be very, very subtle. Sometimes we just miss it altogether. And sometimes we're in the company of others that miss it. And there's a kind of condoning of falling or entering into temptation, of yielding. 
to it rather than against it. So look out for them. Look out for those temptations in your life that you haven't noticed. Be careful when you're in a vulnerable situation. We all become vulnerable at some point. When you're angry, what kinds of temptations come when you're angry? Judging people, losing your temper, remonstrating, hurting people. We've all done it. Perhaps when you're alone, temptations come. Perhaps when you're lonely, temptations come. When no one perhaps is looking, temptations come. When you become desperate or confused or you start to doubt, when you start making excuses. Have you ever done that? Oh, I've had a great day. I've been out witnessing for the Lord. I deserve whatever. I deserve this. I deserve more of that. You know, I've done really well today. So the Lord would want me to enjoy such and such. There's no fight in that. It could be TV. It could be another glass of beer, bowl of ice cream. It could be a whole load of things. You decide. A bit of shopping. You know, some people that are constantly tempted to shopping. I want to say to you, Get an accountability friend or partner. If you're married, there it is. Perhaps it's another friend. Get them to look out for temptations in your life and to point them out because you might not see them. So start looking. Take this seriously. This is war, isn't it? It's a spiritual war that's going on. You can see it's a ministering angel to the Lord. Sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground. Like it's a real deal. And just slide into sleep. That's point number one. Learn how to spot temptation. Point number two, memorize scripture. You knew I was going to say that, didn't you? Memorize scripture. Get scripture in here. It's the word of eternal life. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, when we hear about those three particular temptations, what does he do? Give Satan a slap? No, he could have done that. He could have clicked his fingers. Bread could, stones could have become bread. All those things could have happened. No, he didn't do that. He fought with the word of God. Why? Because scripture was in him. Now you might say, well, he is the word of God and he knows it better than anyone. Good. Do we have an excuse though? We come here, we read the word, we go to Bible studies, we claim to know it. Do we know it in here? Do we know it in here? Is it having an effect on us? Because it's a sword of the spirit memorize scripture and you might say well what scripture should i learn um one time i asked that question and someone said well not jesus wept because we all know that right and it's fair enough right it's important jesus wept he felt things it was real he understood the nature of sin in that case john three sixteen. hopefully we all know that psalm 23 they're good but there's many more i want to encourage you in fact I want to challenge you this week to take one verse or a few verses and learn them. Learn them. Some people call those fighter verses. There are apps that are available to help you to memorize and learn scripture. When Satan comes along where you feel tempted. Are you going to fight with your words? That's not going to work. Oh, I'll get back. 
I won't have the chocolate. That's not going to work. It might work for a little while. If Christ's word is dwelling in you richly, you're taking thoughts captive for Christ that you might obey him. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. Perhaps learn Ephesians 6. You might say, ooh, it's a whole chapter, okay? If you just learn the bit about the full armor of God, it's five verses. <laughs> Surely we can learn five verses. I'll read them to you now so that you can start to remember them. Is that okay? Therefore, says the Apostle Paul, this is absolutely essential in the fight, the spiritual battle. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand on the day of evil. When's the day of evil? Now, today. There's worse days coming, but now, is the, do you think Satan's not here? You're not tempting yourself? You may be able to stand in the day of evil, and having done all, stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith by which you are able to disable, is that the word? Um, extinguish, even stronger, the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword the spirit which is the word of God there it is my analogy for getting this wrong is to turn up to a war and to go in your tank to the battlefield where all the other tanks are and they're firing at each other and you get there in your tank thinking right I'm going to do battle with this and you realize you've turned up on your bicycle impotent powerless useless your guard is gone, you will probably fall asleep and fall into temptation. Memorize scripture. If you don't know any, where's your sword? You won't win that battle. Can't overemphasize the importance of learning scripture. And some of you might say, Oh, well, it's all right for you. You've got a gift to learn scripture. You've all been given a gift to some extent to learn scripture. I think God provided his word and said, well, you know, there's a bunch of people who will never learn it. They'll never read it. They won't touch them. It's there for us. It's the words of eternal life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Bible, the word of Christ. So learn it, please. Uh, we had a friend uh, years ago who wanted to um, learn the whole, to memorize the whole of Hebrews, and he did it. And he put up the text on the back of the door in the toilet. It wasn't on his mobile phone or reading a book. Winston Churchill used to refer to the toilet as the library. Well, my friend was reading Hebrews every time he went to the bathroom, just reading the word of God and forcing it into his life. Just huge. Maybe don't start with the whole of Hebrews. Unless you want to, that's okay. But it's a big book. So memorize scripture. So learn how to look out and spot temptation. Memorize scripture. Point number three, persevere in prayer. Persevere in prayer. You know, John Owen said, if you do not abide in prayer, you will abide in temptation. The great Puritan. If you do not abide in prayer, you will live in temptation. You will not be fighting. We've talked about the full armor of God. You know what happens at the end of that passage? I'll read it again. I'll kick it in the middle. Put up the helmet. Put on the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. 
praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer praying at all times with all prayer he's really emphasizing the need to pray and supplication to that end keep alert with perseverance making prayers or supplications for the saints pray with perseverance We see in this very passage exactly that, don't we? My soul is in anguish, even unto death, and yet Jesus continued praying, continued to persevere in prayer. Was the Lord's Prayer say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. Father, help me not to go in temptation. Lead me away from that. Lead me to your word. Lead me to your son. Deliver me from evil. Make sure that your prayer life is confessional. It's no good if you just rock up and don't think you need to confess your sin. What have I fallen into temptation through? What are those sins? Confess them with God. Take thoughts captive. Commune with the one who prayed and persevered in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because he knows how to persevere, doesn't he? Hebrews talks about one of the reasons God is made a man in Jesus Christ is so that he can understand our frailties, our weaknesses, understand what suffering is so that we can draw near him and commune with him over that. Be honest about those things. So learn how to spot temptation. Learn how to memorize scripture. Persevere in prayer. And the last one is meditate on Christ Jesus crucified and raised for you. Meditate on this. Reflect on this. Another man has said, fill your affections with the cross of Christ that there be no room for temptation in you. Don't think of the cross as some kind of abstract, great piece of theology with extraordinary, profound richness. That's what it is. But don't just think of it that way. Join with Christ in understanding what it really is. Make the cross an ever-present reality in your life. Jesus Christ died for me, for me, for me, for my sin. It was real. He was in agony and suffered and bore that, drunk from that cup of wrath for me. Don't forget that. You're going to walk out of here today and forget that he died for you, if you know Christ. Recognize who you are. Even sing songs if you can't remember scripture. Do you, you know songs, I guarantee you. When Satan tempts me to despair, you know that song, and tells me of the guilt within. What does the, the songwriter say there? Up would I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Claim Christ for your own. Live in that space, in that place. We'll sing a hymn in a minute of Isaac Watts who says, survey the wondrous cross. Consider the richness of this. Put myself in this. Were the whole realm of nature mine. That's an offering too small. Why? Because of his infinite value and worth. You see what's going on? Get into this. Really get into this. Appropriate Christ in your life. 
He's not a, a sideshow. He's not something you add to your life on a Thursday night when you go to the Bible study or on a Sunday morning when you come to church. He is your life. He is your life. How are you going to fight without that? As we close, I just want us to look at one piece of scripture to hopefully allow us to enter into this thing I'm talking about, this meditating on Christ. And there's two ways of looking at this. One is to look upwards, as it were, to the cross, see ourselves, to understand more about him, his great love and his mercy, the wrath of God, the righteousness of God. The other way that I think a lot of people don't do is to sort of sit or stand where Christ is and see what he sees. That's kind of difficult to do. Well, I'll just trip us through a few verses in Psalm 22 that might help us reflect on what he suffered so that we can meditate on him and consider why we would ever sin. Psalm 22, written almost 3,000 years ago, I think about 1,000 years, 900 and something years before Christ in the flesh, says this, and these should be very familiar words. It's a prophetic psalm. It begins like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning, his agony? Oh, God. I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy. I'm a worm. I'm not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. This is, I mean, how precise is this psalm? On the cross. This is what Christ is experiencing, is what he's seeing. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. I am poured out like water all my bones are out of joint and my heart is like wax it is melted within me my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death but you my lord do not be far off Let's hear it again. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed all the more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground jesus triumphs he has that victory over temptation for you let's pray 
our great God and our Father, I thank you so much for Jesus, for every aspect of Jesus, for him being creator, for him being incarnate, for him being born under the law, for him being judged by the law. But today, Lord, I thank you for his persevering spirit to love you, to love us, to bring you glory, to emphasize and vindicate your righteousness. And Father, we're weak. We can be heavy, Lord, with sorrow and the things of the day, the plans we make, the disappointments that come, and we can slide away. The word says, take care lest you drift and listen to Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray for us all that we would indeed be people that look for temptation and say, no, I am going to bring the word of God to bear in this situation. That we would be people that pray and that we would be people that really meditate on your beautiful, glorious son in whose name we pray. Amen.